giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here today with Derek. Hey, Derek. Hey, Ben. So I have had an interesting week. All right. Let's hear about it. Um, So my focus has been on my microconf talk, Mm -hmm. and it's been some ups and downs. Uh, So it's been more than a couple days of work at this point, um, Mm -hmm. exploring topics and writing things up and practicing a bunch. And I'm actually currently on the... (laughs) I'm heading towards the fourth major version of the talk. Okay. So I've basically created, f- I'm, I'm almost, I've almost created four talks at this point, and I still wow. don't think I'm there, honestly. Wow. So versions one and two, I sort of made a little bit in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. So I just said, what should I talk about? And I started thinking about things, and I started making an outline and, and working from that. And I realized some of the way through that, that I didn't know enough about the audience, so I understand, like it actually helps a lot. I, th- I think we said that the conferences split into tracks or into like yeah. sort of two segments. So yeah. I know that everyone that at Microconf Starter is not making a full time income from their business products, mm-hmm. and that helps. But there's still a lot of variance inside that. And so I actually created a survey and started sending it around and trying to get people to fill it out. And that it turns out was a good idea. <laughs> I think nice. um, I learned a lot from that. Mm-hmm. One thing that stood out is currently about half of the people that have filled out the survey, and I have about 50 responses right now, are making no money from digital products at all. Uh, so they're totally like pre-start. Right. And a lot of the people that are making money are making like under $1,000 a month. Hmm. So that was really good information to get. And that was when I basically threw out version two of the talk. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, version three. Uh, version three, I focused on that group of people that haven't started. Mm-hmm. I have some open-ended questions on the survey as well, which is like, what do you think is holding you back? And there are definitely some themes in there. Uh, and the theme, there basically were three major things, which is lack of time, analysis paralysis, and sort of general fear and anxiety over it mm-hmm. not working. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to come up with a talk that would speak to those people. And um, I did another thing that I think was a good idea, uh, which was I gave that version of that talk to a small audience. Jonathan Jackson, the CEO of Damagi, um, or Damagi, not sure, uh, reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to do that? He, he listens to the podcast, and they're in Cambridge. So he was like, hey, do you want to do the talk, a practice version? I said, yes. Yeah, that's awesome. And so I gave that talk last night. And it was, um, it was okay. It was actually really good to do it. Because, so it was, it was partly, it was extra challenging because the audience was not microconf audience they were less right. like i know i want to make an info product or i want to start making money you know using the internet so it was a little bit of a harder sell fewer developers like f- fewer technical types in the audience is more of a mixed audience mm-hmm. but it was still really useful to point out the assumptions and biases that i had baked in there without thinking about it mm. so there were like phases of the talk where i was like and then just share that with your audience and they're like what is who who are you talking about I was yeah. like, oh, well, like, you know, like tweet about it or like, you know, talk about it on your podcast. <laughs> and I realized that I had, I'm just like kind of assuming that like people have a sort of similar megaphone. Right. Because that's just, that's been my reality for a while, yeah. uh, which is, a, I think, an understandable but totally wrong assumption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was actually really good. So, so it kind of exposed a lot of uh, holes in it where like either I had baked in some assumptions that weren't true for the average person and probably are not going to be true for the average microconf attendee either. Yep. Uh, or it was a thing that like, made sense in my head and, and felt well, well thought out. But then as I started actually talking about that bullet point from my notes, it was like, 
there's not a lot of meat on this bone here. Just kind of, after all, I need to think about some more specifics on this. Yeah. So it was, I am really glad I did that because I walked into the talk being like, this thing is actually coming along. It's pretty solid now. And then I walked out like, this still needs a lot of work. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's uh, that's really cool because it it actually parallels with product development mm, mm-hmm. as opposed to developing your talk in a vacuum and potentially missing the mark on what, what your customers, which are in this case your conference audience, actually want to hear. So yeah, I yeah. think, um, you know, kudos to you for uh, taking the extra step and actually like surveying some people and figuring out what's going to be useful for them. I think it's going to be a much, much better talk for that. So, Well, thanks. I, I think so too. And as we're sitting here talking about this, I'm wondering if maybe I should include a short segment in my talk about how I did like development of the talk. I think so. Yeah. Okay, cool. As you can probably tell, I really want to do a good job with this one. Mm-hmm. This is like a culmination of a thing I've wanted to do for a long time. And so I want it, I want it to be really good. And so I, I always have high standards for my talks, but this one feels like I'm putting more pressure on myself than usual. So I'm trying to right. really uh, do the work to make it good. Mm-hmm. It is a little nerve-wracking to be, I guess at this point, like like about five days away from giving the yeah. talk, and it's not yeah. in its final form. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to turn out okay. I'm, I have faith in my ability to make it, make it good at the end of the day. Yeah. So are you, uh, are you still like at this point reworking slides and... So I have no slides stuff? at this point. It's all notes. Okay. So to me, the slides should come last. Mm-hmm. I don't find slides help me make a good talk. I find that like slides occasionally are a good additional visual thing to add to an already yeah. good talk. I think a lot of people like make a talk by making slides because that's their outlining process, mm-hmm. which is fine, mm-hmm. but I just outline with text in Vim in Markdown. Um, <laughs> and, and that's that's faster for me. Yeah. Uh, and then later the slides come if, if I decide, okay, this would be great to have a graph right here, then I'll, I'll put mm-hmm. some slides together. And so mm-hmm. I think my final version will have slides, but there's, there's none yet. Got it. So I think one of the flaws of the talk that I gave is that it ended up being like a 25-minute talk that could have maybe been a five-minute segment of a larger talk mm, with I a see. lot less exposition and a lot, uh, and you know, just like just more to the point. Mm-hmm. So like at one point when I was looking at the survey, like 60% of people said they had no money from digital income from digital products. So I was like, oh, wow, like I could maybe do a talk just for those people. And over right. time, the results have actually flipped. And now it's like 55% do and 45% haven't, don't. And mm. so it's like, mm, do I really want to talk to a minority of the audience for the whole talk? It's like, probably not. And my general approach to talks, uh, when I think about levels of like complexity or like a, how advanced you assume the people are, I think mm-hmm. if you you can talk about the basics and the fundamentals, and the advanced people can still get some stuff out of that. Yeah, like there's always like tuning you can do on the stuff that you had like, oh yeah, I guess I knew that, but I hadn't thought about it recently in the context of whatever my current problems are. Yeah, I think I came to a similar conclusion when I was preparing for my attendee talk where I gave the talk to some people that just friends of mine who are somewhat familiar with what I do. And mm-hmm. I was kind of explaining, it's basically broken into four steps. And I'm talking about the four steps of transforming customer input into actual features. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they were kind of the whole time, they're kind of nodding along and they're like, yeah, 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 that all makes sense. Isn't that common sense? And I'm like, uh. um, it's like I, don't, I don't think so, actually, because I tried to think back, you know, pre-drip, would I have been able to deliver this same talk when if in talking about how to develop features and i probably would it it probably would have been similar because some of it is in line with the quote unquote conventional wisdom or just what other startup people are saying but i think we do have a few twists in there of like i don't know unique learnings along the way mm-hmm. that i'm going to kind of explain in brief story form so i'm trying to have like mm-hmm. a little anecdote at each step nice. of something that we encountered in the history of drip and you know i think there's a little bit of a unique perspective there so even if it's like back to basics type of stuff. I think there's mm-hmm. there can be um, colored by your own experience. There can be some richness there. 
Totally. Sandy Metz, who is a speaker in the Ruby world, said yeah. a thing that she was quoting someone else, I believe, but she, I, I heard it from her and I really liked it, which is people like the story they know. Mm-hmm. Like people reread yeah. books, even though they know what's going to happen. And yep. so if your talk rehashes some things that people already knew, that's okay. Yeah. Because it's, it's enjoyable sometimes. It's just not along and be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's how we do it. That's, that's, that's good advice. I agree with that. Right. And if someone's giving a talk where they're like, maybe talking about what you're going to experience two years down the line in your business, it can be interesting. It can be informative. But also if, if someone's telling a story and you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, I've been through the same thing. Ooh, but they had this experience and that's interesting. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that's why I like listening to podcasts and things that, you know, have people doing similar things to me telling their stories of their day to day, you know, because mm-hmm. I think you can always pull interesting stuff out of that. Yeah. Maybe that's why you're on a podcast where that happens a lot. Where that happens. Yeah. <laughs> but so I've, I've been realizing, I've been thinking about this sort of meta talk process and mm-hmm. I'm having more trouble getting to a talk I'm happy with than usual, I would say. And yeah. I think the core thing here is that normally I have a talk I want to give and then I'll get like an invitation to speak somewhere or apply to speak somewhere and then give the talk. Yeah. And this has kind of happened in the reverse where it was like, hey, do you want to speak at MicroConf? And I was like, absolutely. And now it's mm-hmm. like, but, but I don't have a talk in mind yet. It is, it is, there's no fully formed thing. Usually a thing has coalesced. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sort of like forcing that and sort of like looking back, like, okay, what, what's worth sharing? Who am I talking to? What do they need to hear? Uh, and that mm-hmm. is a more challenging process than kind of letting it happen like via my subconscious. Yeah. I think we had talked before, like you, obviously you're passionate about pricing. Um, is this still a pricing focused <laughs> talk or is it? No, I cut all of that actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was like V1 or V2 had a ton of, I think it was v- V1 had a ton of pricing in it. And yeah. when I was giving a talk towards people that hadn't started, I was like, I'm not sure pricing is like the thing you need at this point. Yeah, the uh, advice would be like two minutes of like, just don't think too hard about pricing. Right? Exactly. Yeah, it would be yeah. like, all right, if you're going to make a thing, an ebook, charge this much. If you're going to make a, a SaaS, use these tiers. And like, yeah. next. Right. Don't get clever about pricing yep. on these things. Yeah, so I may still talk about that a little bit. And it's still such a topic that I care about that I feel like it might be good to include because I know I'll be passionate mm-hmm. about it as I'm saying things. Sure. And I have some good stories and anecdotes uh, to share around that topic. Yeah. So I think it actually will make it, it into the final talk. How much storytelling are you planning to do in your talk um, at this point? I, the last version, the one I did at Damagi, I did almost none. Mm-hmm. And I think that was like another, another weakness of the talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the direction I'm thinking of going for, call it V4, is sort of lessons and stories. Yeah. is kind of the guiding light. Like things that worked for me, the experience of doing them, pictures of the MRR graph as, you yep. know, I change things. Uh, just kind of like an experience report. Yep. Um, a lot of people talked about in the survey that, that they were hoping, I, one of the questions I asked is, what are you hoping to get from the talks? And a lot of people said inspiration. Mm-hmm. And so to some extent, I think that's kind of like, I, I almost want to have a section of my talk where I talk about, where I say like, don't wait for inspiration. Yeah. When you want to do things professionally, you don't, you can't wait until you're feeling fired up and, and inspired. You kind of that's need right. to show up and do the work regardless. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, inspiration does make a nice conference talk feeling. And yeah, so, and some part of you inspiring them could be like, here's how I just showed up and did the work. Sure. You know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like, go forth and be inspired. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think some like stories of like, you know, trials and tribulations and then this thing worked out or like we tried this thing and it didn't and it was a bummer, but it was okay. So I think I, I'm falling back towards story based delivery yeah. of things. 
I think that has probably been the one thing that that has made talks most effective for me as a listener is when they do a fair amount of storytelling in there. And Mm -hmm. I suspect that it's going to take some of the pressure off of you as the speaker because you can tell your own stories pretty well. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what you do every week on this podcast. Mm -hmm. So and I think it's probably the most interesting form of delivering the information as opposed to like, you know, here's 10 bullet points of things you should do kind of like, you know, as if you pull them from a book, it's like, no, 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 just tell your story. And the nice thing is, like we talked about never delivering advice that you haven't actually experienced yourself, you know, and that's right. So totally. And that, that was something that crept into my, the talk, like the version three was kind of like, I was inventing some things where I was like, yeah, but I haven't really done that. Mm-hmm. But it sounds good. Yeah. So yeah, I think I actually was thinking about moving a little bit more away from prescriptive, like sort of actionable advice is kind of like the, the buzzword that I, I keep hearing for the talks. Yeah. And yeah. I think you can have actionable things without saying you should do X and Y. Yeah. You can say, here is what I did and this is what mm-hmm. happened. And mm-hmm. you need to use your knowledge and your your own context to decide whether or not that's going to work for you. Right. Because I think we all discover there are fewer and fewer absolutes uh, over time, the more we do things with software businesses and with anything really, but you know, especially in business, it's like you could say this one thing worked for me and you should go do this. But then if you, if you have your next business and you try the same thing and the complete opposite happens, then the next time you're giving that advice, it's going to be like, well, okay, this worked the one time, but maybe it didn't work the other time. So yeah, absolutely like more gray. Yep. The more I learn about everything, the more I realize that that's kind of how the world works. Yep. There's a short list of absolutes. Mm hmm. And uh, so you'd be, it's, it's probably best to not prescribe too much. Yep. Oh, so that's where I'm at. Um, cool. But cool. I'm, f- I'm flying to Vegas in two days. Uh, it's kind of exciting. Nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm pumped for the, for the conference and to speak there for the first time. Mine's only a 12-minute talk, so it's um, stakes feel not quite as high as a, as a main stage talk. 12 but, minutes uh, is such a good talk length. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm a little jealous of your, of your talk length, believe it or not. Yeah, it it forces you to get to the point, and mm-hmm. you basically you can't go on too long, more yeah. or less. It's yeah. kind of like there's there's no danger of boring the audience, kind of. Yeah, and that's my hope is that I'm not going to slide into the boring territory. Um, yeah, I've been, I've rehearsed it a few times. I'm trying not to over rehearse because I think the few times I've given it just to other people standing in a room. Um, one time I like left out an example that I intended to put in and I came out right around 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And when I put that in, it brings me right to about 12. And what I like about this this time around is that oftentimes I, I tend to pack in way too much content and end up running out of time to deliver it. So I get rushed or whatever. And this time I, I intentionally, there was like a slide where I was going to show a visual of a graph and like talk through the phases of the graph. And I was like, you know what, that's this is just not fitting. Maybe I could I could probably pack it in if I was super tight, but I'm just going to leave a little bit of wiggle room there. And mm-hmm. what's nice is every time I practice it, I come out consistently 10 to 12 minutes. So hmm, nice. That's beautiful. Yeah. The, the graph example reminded me of uh, an experience I had as I was editing my talk mm-hmm. where I was killing swaths of it that I liked, but I knew didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And there's this there's some famous phrase from a writer that said, kill your darlings. Mm which is like to, to make the writing really good, you just have to kill parts that you do like. Yeah. And that, that to me, I, that's how I can tell when I'm on the right track is yep. when I start saying, ah, oh, this is such a good thing, but I'm just going to get rid of it because it's not, it's not right for this. Yep. As opposed to like kind of tweaking small things and changing the order here and there. It's like when yep. I can tell when I'm making like the, the painful cuts. It's like, okay, I think I'm on the right track now. Yeah, it was a nice slide. I couldn't bring myself to delete it, but I like hid it in the deck so that <laughs> it wouldn't show up. I was like, I was, all right, I'm not going to delete this yet, but... <laughs> yep. Yeah. Nice. 
And now, a brief message from our sponsor. The nature of work has changed. Some say it's been rearranged. Fresh books will come to your rescue. There's a type of grass called fescue. You worked and must now be paid. With fresh books, you'll be unafraid. An invoice so beautifully made, your payment shall be not waylaid. With a trial so generously free, your risk is at zero, you see. Are you intrigued by my thoughts? Freshbooks.com slash giant robots. You can enter giant robots in the how did you hear about us section. 30-day free trial. Check it out. Enjoy. And thanks to FreshBooks for sponsoring of this week's show. So you're feeling pretty good? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm just trying to, you know, one step at a time. Um, I'm actually flying to Vegas today. This is Friday. So, and my wife's coming along with me and we're going to just get a little R&R before the conference starts, which will be fun. That's cool. Um, Yeah. So I'm planning, once I get there, there's not really any agenda. So I'm going to clear my headspace a little bit to just like very calmly review through my talk, run through it a few more times and just kind of get mentally prepared. So. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Are you staying for starter? I am not. No. Okay. I'm bummed. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get to hear your talk. Um, That's okay. But uh, yeah, I'll get to see it when the uh, when the videos are released. <laughs> yes. Excellent. I might want to give it to you before at some point during growth. Get some yeah, extra totally. feedback. Let's do it. Nice. What else is up with you? Well, let's see. I had um, from the trenches this week. I had a good um, pair programming experience. Oh, nice! So, and I thought you might uh, you might enjoy it. <laughs> I did, I, I, yeah, I'm excited. It's not so. It's not something I've typically done a whole lot of, mm-hmm. but I've been getting the sense that, especially for some of the more meaty, gnarly problems that we're working on, it's probably going to be beneficial because one, it's going to help us arrive at a solution faster to just pair up on things, and yep. also it's going to make the kind of the review phase I've found for things that like touch a really complex part of the code base it's a lot more mental burden to review that code because as hard as you try to look at the diff and figure out is this breaking anything is it, have we covered all the edge cases sure we have tests but mm-hmm. you know tests aren't guaranteed to be comprehensive i found myself like procrastinating on reviewing those polls or like urging developers to like all right we should really we really need to do manual qa on this because i don't you know i'm not super confident that i've been able to spot any edge cases and um, so I was in, um, California this week and got to, um, head into our old office to meet up with one of our developers who stayed back in, in Fresno. Mm-hmm. So we set out to work on this problem. It was like, a something to do with the automatic SQL queries that we generate based on user input. And we're basically trying to minimize the number of joins on a query. Mm-hmm. A couple, a couple of weeks ago, we had this particular query that like totally was like the most evil SQL query you've ever seen mm-hmm. <laughs> where it had like five joins against a really large table and looking at the, you know, memory graphs from the database server, like spiked up to like triple the amount of memory used. And we started getting out of memory errors. It was just crazy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, our DBA was like, yeah, so. I rewrote this query using one join and it ran in 50 milliseconds. So mm. do you think it'd be possible to do that? And I was like, all right, it's time to <laughs> time to take mm. another pass at at basically the, the join optimizer for this part of the code base. Yeah. But like figuring out what, based on user-generated criteria, what in what cases can we share joins and what cases do we need distinct joins is actually like not a trivial problem. So doesn't sound trivial. Yeah. So we both, we basically, I, I let him know ahead of time, like, Hey, I want to, I want to work on this when I'm in town, you know, be thinking about this. I'm going to think about it too. Mm-hmm. And then 
we met up and and he had like a some tests written and a rough sketch of his idea of how it should function. And I had actually taken a pass at this about a year ago and punted on it because it was going to be too complex. And I figured the cost benefit was not in alignment. Mm-hmm. So I resurrected my old branch and we kind of compare what we did and we took similar approaches, but we had learnings that we could both take from our branches. And it was like only about an hour and a half and we had basically a, a first pass, a V1 at it. So nice. that felt really good. Yeah. And then, so he's like, all right, I'm going to take this, run with it, you know, implement it on all the different filter conditions and then start, you know, testing it out in the wild and make sure it works. So that was cool. And then we ran into another edge case that was actually a pretty significant one. And so we paired up again the next mm. uh, couple days later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just had like, we were on the whiteboard. We were, we were like throwing ideas out there. It was great. We had cryptic hieroglyphics on there that we took a picture of and only the two of us understood it mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and came to another solution. And I think, again, we, we paired for about two hours on that. And mm. um, I think we solved the problem. So that was like, could have been weeks and weeks worth of work compressed down into basically two great pairing sessions. Nice. Yeah, pairing is such high bandwidth. Yeah. It's crazy. What did the pairing look like? Like, did you have two keyboards? Were you writing tests and taking turns? Like, what were you doing? Yeah, so basically I was sitting next to him and we had one keyboard when we were in the office and I had him pressing the keys because I wanted him to take the most ownership of what we were writing. But I was okay. kind of like, all right, let's write the test first for this. And he's like, okay, it pops up in the test file. And and then I let him kind of get started on it. But he was, then, you know, he would throw questions to me like, well, what, how do you think we should structure this? And then, so I threw out some ideas. And it was mostly like that. I think on d- the first day, I really didn't take control of the keyboard at all. Mm-hmm. So, so you were navigating. There. Yeah, just kind of navigating. Gotcha. Okay. So... We had another strategy session in the office, and then we we finished it up pairing remotely. And um, I used Screen mm-hmm. Hero for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which that my gosh, that is an awesome. It product. is. I love Screen Hero. <laughs> Didn't they get they like, got bought? Are they getting shut down or something silly? Bought them? So they got bought by Slack. Okay. And, and I remember this because I used them back in 2014 for a, when we had a remote contractor in Mexico, and it was there was only a short period of time, but I remember pairing with him. Uh, using it and then there was an announcement in january of 2015 that slack bought them yep and i think i suspect that the the slack voice and video chat capabilities are probably you know leveraging the technology from screen hero uh-huh and they they shut down signups right and they made it free for anyone who's any existing users and thank goodness i had like a yeah same a login yeah so so i'm looking at the, their page now like they're still saying like new signups are closed yeah for so like but if you have an account, you can invite people. Oh, interesting. That's the that's the loophole. Okay, awesome. Okay, so you so you screen hero, you screen hero, and yeah, I can't say enough good things about that. And I yeah. hope that they either keep it running or someone else comes along. Maybe there's an maybe there's an equivalent product, but in terms of just workingness, screen hero is is way up there for me. I've yeah, had really good results with it. Yeah. So again, we did we did something pretty similar, but there were a few times where I like you know, kind of jumped in and was like, hey, can I take control of the keyboard? And mm-hmm. and um, we tossed it back and forth a few times. But Yeah. I like having two keyboards when pairing mm-hmm. because sometimes if you don't, you end up in a situation where you're like dictating code for someone to write. Yeah. Like, oh, what if we tried it with like a map? And they're like, wait, what do you mean? Like this? Like, no, no, no like no, M, A, open. No, no. <laughs> Pass that into yeah. the, no, no. And it's just like, come on. <laughs> right. So right. It's, it's nice to be able to just like, I'll show you. And then you do a little typing. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. And my broader question was like, I feel like pairing is probably one of the ways to accomplish this. But as a broader question, just from like a leadership perspective, 
do you have any tips from your thoughtbot experience in like helping other developers to level level up their skills yeah there's nothing that's as good as pairing yeah in my book it's the most efficient way that i know of like that's how i kind of like got over the hump of like being a beginner ruby programmer Mm -hmm. was at my first professional ruby job i was pairing a lot like probably Mm -hmm. most days for at least a couple hours Mm -hmm. and Pairing is particularly good because you, you you learn so many things simultaneously. It's like you get the right. domain knowledge and the Ruby chops and also things like shell tricks yeah. or Vim, imp- like editor, like hacks, things like that. Like just seeing how someone else who's a little more advanced does things is yeah. a very rich experience. Yeah. And you don't get that through PR reviews, which I would say is next best. Right. Um, you get some of that but it's not as good. And so it's like, if, if that's the best you got, then it's still pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. Just having all of your code reviewed by somebody else is like a really mm-hmm. worthwhile process. And like, we do that for everything here. Like everything gets reviewed before it goes to master in pretty much every ThoughtBot product that we have, like sure. project. And there's even been research as far as showing like what practices reduce bugs the most. And mm. code review is the, was the number one. So not it's surprisingly, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a really effective thing. But to me, it's kind of like if pairing is 100%, then like PR review is like 50. Yeah. Um, and after that, it like drops off real fast. Yeah. I, I think my assumption a few years ago was like code review is, is the way to help people become more idiomatic Ruby programmers and improve their style and teach new, you know, hey, you can use a map here instead of a whatever or an inject or, you know, like teach new tricks. And definitely I've been able to do that. But I feel like the curve is a lot steeper on pairing like like you can get someone to potentially level up even faster and get you know deeper knowledge by by doing that yeah like the more you think about it i think it makes really good intuitive sense which Mm -hmm. is like if you are learning to paint and you provide like you show up and you say here's my final painting and someone goes oh it'd be nice if you had used a little more whatever over here and the light in this section doesn't look quite so good versus i'm going to paint a painting next to a, a person that's really good at this yeah. Because there's so much more than like the final thing is a snapshot yeah. of some work. And there were so many decisions and techniques that went into that that don't really get commented on and yeah. are, are become invisible. But like pairing, you can see that whole thing. And it's just, I, I can't count the number of times I've been pairing with someone and gone, wait, wait, what did you just do? It's like, mm-hmm. how did you move that whole method all at once? Or how did you like jump right to that repo? Or like just, just a million little things like that that really yeah. make you a faster, more efficient programmer. And also just seeing like technique, like TDD is like a process. It's not like a, you, when you look at the diff at the end of the day, you don't see if someone was TDDing it or if they did it in an efficient way or sure. if they did it in, a, in like, if they extracted a class in a way that was less error prone than other methods. Like there's just, there's so much in the process that you can learn. Uh, that yeah. I have had to pick up by watching other people do it. I don't think there's another way. A pull request is really an outside view of the internal process, and it's there's a lot of hidden moving parts that you don't see yep. from a pull request. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I really like that painting analogy. I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you think of it that way. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think if we had not paired on this, and I'm not saying just this other developer, I mean, I could have done the same thing without his input. We could have easily gone and written a thousand lines of code that were basically not on the right track and to rewind from that there's like inertia once code is in a branch you know it's like you want to Mm -hmm. refine from there but sometimes you just need to completely reset the compass and go a completely different direction but you feel bad as a reviewer if you say like ah we need to scrap all this and start over you know exactly (laughs) exactly and that's the beauty of having 
two people there, like one person mm-hmm. with like not typing, is you can be the person thinking like, do we need to do this at all? Like, can yeah. we punt on that thing? Can we ignore that case? Can we not write this code? Can we yep. sim- can we simplify this if, if we ignore certain things? There's an opportunity there. Yeah. And like you say, like once the code gets written, it is tough to be like, can we just close this? Po-? Like, how often do PRs get opened that don't get merged? Yeah. Like pretty rare, right? Like the the, the tendency rare. is to merge it once someone has got it there. Because I feel like you've spent goodwill. If you say, I want to close it, it's like, I, I can't do that to this developer again for a while because yeah, yeah, that was crappy, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. And you feel like it's like uh, it's on me. Like, I should have realized ahead of time that, like, this isn't mm-hmm. the direction we wanted to go or I should have specified this in a different way. Uh, yeah. But, like, during a pairing session, you can just be like, do we need this? Like, is there yeah. is there a way we can we can cut this down? There's a great tweet I saw, which is, like, a manager talking to a developer saying, like, are you saying that if we let our developers pair a program all the time, won't they only write half as much code? And the person says, hopefully they'll write even less than that. <laughs> yeah. And I, just, I love that. I think that's like just yeah. a perfect summary of, of the benefits. That's actually exactly what happened with this one. We had on our whiteboard, we had like, well, I think we need these internal data structures in this object to track, you know, what joins have been used and which ones can be shared. And we had like nested hashes within hashes and arrays and all this stuff. And we boiled it down to two hashes that maintain a key with a count and like we could we could like collapse it down Mm -hmm. and the the funny thing is this second pass that we made that fixed a major edge case was only like three lines longer than the original solution but it just had a few extra like state tracking things within it so it was like super elegant at the end of the day yeah beautiful and it all kind of collapsed like we started out writing it with all the data structures that we thought we needed and then as he was typing i was sitting there like Hey, we don't even need this array because we can we can just use a counter for it. And mm-hmm. they were like, so we just kept nuking lines, and it was beautiful. It's the best. <laughs> so yeah, I love this stuff. This is this is kind of yeah. my jam right here. Yeah, good I episode. Figured you would figured you would like that. Good, good <laughs> yeah, good topic. You you got one yeah. of my my hot button issues. Yep. Conference talks and pair programming. This is Boom. like targeted right at my weak spots. <laughs> Oh, so by the way, I'm uh, I'm gonna bring a microphone to uh, microconf. <laughs> It'd be funny if microconf were about microphones, actually. Yeah, yeah. one <laughs> might think it is based yeah. on the name. Uh, yeah, some people are probably gonna show up and be really disappointed by the talk. <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, we could do a live GR, and I'm also gonna plan to interview a handful of other people. Uh, nice. There. Yeah. So we can do. Yeah, it. I will bring my mic as well. I don't know if you want to share. Have you do you, ever, do you typically share a mic? I'm sort of an obsessive travel light person. And so mm-hmm. I'm bringing like a, a, a little tiny plugs right into my iPhone mic. Okay. So we'll just share that. It's kind of like a omnidirectional thing or whatever nice. the right term is for it, but it'll Very be cool. fine. Sweet. Cool. Today's show was produced and edited by Obarski, Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 235. Thanks for listening.